0: Hey guys, thank you for tuning in for this episode of 13. Before we go any further, as always, I want to thank our new patrons. And buckle up. Our Patreon grew a lot in November, and we are so excited to welcome these folks to the 13 Pod Fam. Daisy King, Heidi Draper, Exenia Palacios, Tiffany, Mari Cooper, Teresa Wong, Tara Pratt, Mary Masoner, Jillian Moore, Chelsea Loki, Diana Miller, Sarah, Tiffany, Hiram Morales, Jacob West Roberts, George T, Catherine Fairley Wilson, Danny, Ana Catalina Velez Bauza, Anna Ritchie, Minnesota Kevin, Louis Halkett, Marcia Sanders, Annie P., Hannah Baki, Sylvia Zapetta, Sharp Cookie, and Holly Hope Landic. Thank you all so much for your support. Our patrons get a lot more 13, like extra stories each month including over two years' worth of past bonus episodes. They get updates on the show, exclusive merch, and access to our patron-only Discord server, where you can chat about the show or whatever else is on your mind. Our patrons also never have to listen to ads, and they're the best people on Earth. So if you want to be part of the PodFam, check us out on Patreon. We'll put a link in the show notes. Now, I know it hasn't escaped your notice that the holidays are nearly here. So if you're still trying to find the perfect gift for the 13 fan in your life, or if you need to drop some hints about what your loved ones should grab for you, check out our merch on TeePublic. We have some great stuff, including our new 13 tarot design, The Magician Cicada. Click the link in the show notes to browse. This month's episode is Polar Night, written by J.R. Blaines. You'll recognize Ian and 13 alum Mason Amadeus. Okay. Are you ready? On with the show.
1: It's barely two in the afternoon, and already, the sun's dipping below the mountain range in the distance. My jeep's headlights cut through the gray Alaskan afternoon. The wipers battle the pellets and snow dinging the windshield. The cold sinks its teeth into my bones, despite the heater kicked to full power. I pass the wooden snow-covered sign welcoming me to Barton. My aging jeep Plowing a path through the thick white powder in the center of town. I feel the ghosts of my parents watching me from the small shop windows of my childhood home. I see them in the dull eyes staring at me from behind the ski masks of every person I pass. Not much has changed since I left the tundra six years ago. Here's the barn that was turned into a store where you could shop for necessities like clothes, household appliances. And hiking gear. There's the Fish and Hook, the only pub in town, where my mom sometimes had to rescue my dad when he'd had too much to drink. There's the inn where they'd stay every year on their anniversary, and the trailers where every kid who grew up in Barton went to school. All the buildings were now decorated in strings of bright lights. It was in celebration of the coming Polar Night, the longest night of the year where darkness reigned for 24 hours straight. After my parents died, my Aunt Jane and Uncle Tim, they took me to live with them in Seattle, and I promised that I'd never come back here. Being here now, I wish I would have kept that promise. But my childhood best friend wouldn't let me. His name was Griff. Griff. Just like he had for several years, Griff messaged me on Facebook a month back, begging me to come visit. It's the polar night, he'd written. It'll be a blast. We'll lay around in sleeping bags by the fire, watch old horror movies and eat like pigs, just like when we were kids. Other than random replies on each other's social media posts, we hadn't spoken much in the years since. I felt like we'd grown apart. Living in the city had changed me in a lot of ways. I no longer hunted or fished or hiked like I did when I was younger. I preferred being around people and doing things like reading in cafes and going to see live music. Still, this didn't stop my old friend from begging me to come home. Sadly, I don't think he really had any other close friends. But, as usual, I made an excuse as to why I couldn't come. I told him, I was busy with school. A few days later, Griff surprised me with a call. Underneath all of his cheerful badgering, I could tell that something was wrong. I figured living in isolation had finally gotten to him, especially now that his ma and pa were gone. I knew if our roles were reversed, Griff would be there, no questions asked. Besides, I owed him one. He was there for me when my parents died. So, I packed my bags and drove the two-day drive across the frozen tundra. On my way through town, I took a minute and parked in front of the red log cabin that was once my folk store. When I see it, I can't believe that it's still there. I would have thought that the town would have torn it down by now. The place looks completely abandoned, the paints all chipped, And the window is boarded, and there's a hole the size of a boulder in the roof. The big white sign with my family's name on it is still above the doorway. It was written in big red letters beneath a pair of moose horns. I cut the engine and hopped out into the Arctic blast. The air was cold enough to freeze my lungs. My boots crunched in the snow as I sauntered toward the entrance. The outside of the icebox is frozen solid, but there's nothing inside but mold. I peer through the tiny square window of the door. There are shelves and counters still inside, but they're empty other than a thick layer of dust and what looks like animal droppings. Dirty footprints lead a trail around the cracked tile. Somebody was here, and not too long ago. I wonder what they were doing. I couldn't see any reason anyone would want to be in this place in its shabby condition. I picture my mom behind the register, telling the same stupid jokes that somehow always got a laugh. She was a good humored woman and she never let anything get her down. Even when we had money trouble and didn't know how we'd pay the bills, we've survived worse, she'd say. I wish that I had some of her optimism. But when she died, that part of me died too. I can still see my dad, at the meat counter, an apron strapped tight around his belly, a hairnet trapping his beard. He would bag Chinook and Chum for the locals. Unlike my ma, he wasn't much of a conversationalist, mostly kept to himself, and didn't have anything else in his life besides the store and us. But that seemed to be enough I never heard him complain about anything but a sore back now I wonder if he was happy he'd inherited the store from his parents and sometimes I wonder if maybe he wanted more out of life I heard a scratching sound and my body went stiff a wave of nausea passes over me as I step away from the door Quietly, I move toward the side of the building and peer around the corner. It's a chipmunk climbing a tree. I do the breathing exercises my therapist taught me and tell myself to relax. Knowing it'll be dark soon, I hop into my truck and drive the last 20 minutes up into the mountains, up to Griff's house. For a moment, when I pass the gravel trail leading to my family's cabin, I think I see my parents in my rearview, waving near the rusted mailbox, but it's only tree branches fluttering in the wind. What the hell am I doing here? There's still daylight when I pull up to the Parsons' cabin, Parking right next to Griff's pickup. I peel my white knuckled fingers from the steering wheel, turning off the ignition, and I listen as the motor stutters to a halt. Steam drifts from beneath the hood and floats through the ice crystals glittering in the air. The breath from my chapped lips fogs the windshield. I'm finally glad to be off those damn mountain roads. The cabin is smaller than I remember a square box stacked from wood logs. Fresh powder is on the roof, where a satellite dish sticks out like a growth on a tree. Two square windows capture the golden light from the setting sun. They shimmer like an animal's glowing eyes. A chorus of baying dogs echoes across the valley. I jump in my seat. I flip the controls to lock the doors and scoot low beneath the dashboard. Suddenly... I'm that scared boy again, huddled inside a shed, peering through a crack, out into the darkness. The cabin's wood door bangs open, causing me to jump again. Griff's lanky shadow emerges onto the icy porch. Long greasy hair falls over his ears, and a black beard falls down from his jaw to his chest. A furry unibrow curves above his dull gray eyes. He waves his gangly arms like a survivor hailing a rescue plane. I'm glad to see him. I grab my bag from the back seat and get out of the jeep. Griff walked across the yard, hunched over slightly at the waist.
2: Hey, you're here. I was worried you wouldn't make it.
1: His car hearts hang by a single strap over a ratty flannel. The laces of his boots flap around untied. Griff grabs me by the collar and pulls me into a hug, damn near squeezing the breath out of me. There's a musky outdoorsy smell about him. "Damn, I can't believe you're really here.
2: How long has it been?" I tap his shoulder to let go. "It's been a long time. Where did all the time go? I mean, look at you. All grown up and clean-shaven. Yeah, man. I, how you feeling?" He slugs my bicep hard enough to bruise. Better now that you're here. I'm so glad your aunt's number hadn't changed. I mean, otherwise, I don't know if I'd have found you. She said you're doing real good down in the lower 48. About to graduate, right? What was it, psychology? I rubbed the sore spot and smirk. Yeah, figured
1: I'd gone through enough therapy that I'd be pretty good at helping others. Griff was digging a hole with the toe of his boot. Not one to bring the mood down, I asked what he'd been up to. Griff stares off toward where the dogs were making noise a few moments ago.
2: Oh, nothing. You know, things never change around here. This time, I was the one trying to get info out of him.
1: Oh, come on, don't play cool now. When you called, you acted like I'd never see you again if I didn't
2: race my ass up to the tundra. Now, I took off a week for work. Come on, what's up? Why don't we go inside? Probably, uh, probably not used to the Arctic weather anymore. I mean, it gets cold in Seattle. Griff smirked.
1: Already, we're competing over something trivial. It's been like this since we were kids. Competing over who spat the farthest, who raced their sled the fastest, who could snag the biggest Chinook. The rivalry encompassed our families, too. How many times did we argue over whose dad would win a fight? Not that there would be any competition. How Parsons would have laid my dad flat out. Legend around here says that the man once caught a 90-pound king with his bare hands. The dogs bay again. My teeth chatter. What's going on with your neighbor's dogs?
2: Bears, probably. They get closer this time of year, when food's scarce. For a moment, I swear I see something
1: big, moving in the bushes. The cabin feels claustrophobic, even compared to my loft apartment. The tightly packed furniture nearly rests on top of each other. Three rickety chairs circle around a dining room table, leaning on rocky legs where a laptop was plugged in. There's a tiny blue flame inside an oil lamp. Furry rugs lay like roadkill across the floors. I half expect a yelp when I step on them. This isn't how I remember the place. It felt so much cozier when Griff's parents owned it.
2: You can throw your things over there.
1: Griff points to a small lumpy sofa with a checkered afghan and a couple of throw pillows. When I put my bag down on the cushion, I catch a whiff of wet fur. I think about the dogs baying outdoors. I turn to face him. I didn't know you had pets. Griff scratches his neck and chest.
2: I don't. Why does it smell like a dog? This is the wilderness. There's a lot of strange smells. I think you've forgotten that, living in the city. Uh, You're probably right. Griff opens the bathroom door beneath the stairs
1: and tosses me a can of lavender potpourri. That should do the trick. I shake the canister and give the sofa a light spray. It only makes the smell stronger. Griff hobbles around the narrow path, zigzagging through the shared living room and dining area making his way to the kitchen.
2: Feel free to kick off your shit kickers. Flop wherever you want. Want a beer?
1: Next to the sofa, on cabinets that once held his mom's pottery, were piles of heavy-duty padlocks and keys. I pick one up and see that the latch is busted. The same with the next one and the next. On the shelf beneath, a broken chain wrapped around a railroad spike. A tranquilizer gun is loaded with a dart next to a box of 30-30 Winchester bullets. Over the shelf, there's a gun rack with a few rifles. I run my fingers along the initials CS carved into the barrel of one. I'm almost flattered that Griff kept mine after all these years. I point my thumb in the direction of the weapons. You plan on wrangling another moose? Griff digs in the refrigerator and comes out with a couple of beers. You can never be too careful in these parts, you know that. Outside the window, paw prints with large claws disappeared into the snow-laden bushes. Griff went on.
2: You know that better than anyone.
1: We sit in rickety chairs pointed at each other from opposite sides of the fireplace. As Griff lowers himself into the chair, his joints make a painful popping sound. I ask if he's okay, and he says it's the cold. Griff wraps his slender body inside his heavy coat, even though the beads of sweat are sprouting along his forehead. He scratches his chest and neck like he's covered in bug bites. I ask if he needs some calamine lotion,
2: and he laughs. Itch cream's not going to do any good. It's part of the illness. This is the first he's talking about his illness. Taking a sip of beer,
1: Griff just sits in silence like he's contemplating how to tell me the bad news.
2: Finally, he speaks up. I'm sick. Like, like really sick. It's the reason I was hoping you'd come this year.
1: Now that I've had a chance to get a closer look at him, I can see that Griff doesn't look well.
2: Jesus, Griff. Like, like dying sick? Not exactly. But, but it's something with my cells. Some kind of mutation. What do the doctors say? Doctors? Those loons couldn't diagnose a cough if I was hacking germs in their face. I mean, I mean, okay, but do they know the cause? Hereditary, they think. Probably got it from one of my parents.
1: Griff slams through his beer like he's dying of thirst. I wonder if drinking's good for... for whatever's wrong with him.
2: He sees me looking at him. Yeah, don't worry. It doesn't have anything to do with my liver. Isn't itchy skin part of liver disease?
1: The shadows from the fire darken his features. Trust me,
2: it's not liver disease.
1: I was about to ask him what he was doing about it, when a smile pushes through his mustache.
2: Do you remember when we got lost, wandering around out in the mountains pretending we were explorers? Seeing the griff wants to change the subject, I let the conversation drop.
1: If he doesn't want to talk about it, then I don't feel like it's my place to push. Maybe the reason he's asked me here is to forget about it for a while. I'm happy to play
2: along. Yeah, you cried thinking we'd never make it home. Probably wouldn't have if you didn't find that trail. Yeah, I thought your dad was going to kill us. He was so mad. Me too. He always warned us so we would get hurt out there on our own. Yeah, we never did, though. Remember when I had to carry you down the mountain with a broken ankle? Or the time that I nearly drowned us and tipped our raft over, reaching for a case of beer I dropped in the river. We laughed. It was just like
1: old times. We kept drinking, and we let the fire warm our skin. And we reminisced about the day Griff and I soaked our gym uniforms in the showers to get out of running track. The 4th of July that we blew up an outhouse with dynamite while we were camping with the Boy Scouts in the backwood cabins stealing six-packs from my parents' store and drinking them by the river. The hours of boredom, staring at the northern lights in the sky, talking about growing up and finally leaving this arctic wasteland. Above the mantle, a moose head judges me from its plaque on the wall. I see you still got your dad's souvenir.
2: Griff shook his finger at the moose. He'd never been prouder of me than the day we came home carrying that sucker.
1: You never did tell him it was me that shot it,
2: did you? Are you kidding? It ruined the moment? I don't know. I'm pretty sure he knew anyway. I was never much of a hunter. I don't recall Hal Parson
1: ever being hard on Griff, but he must have been in private. Griff always felt like he never lived up to his dad's expectations. When I bagged that moose that day, Griff begged me to tell Hal that it was him. I didn't see the problem in a little white lie. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your dad.
2: Griff opened us up a couple more beers. Nah, at least he died doing the thing he loved. Yeah, but a stray bullet? When
1: Griff messaged me last year about his dad getting shot by accident while hunting, I thought he was pulling my leg until he sent me the newspaper article. It just didn't seem possible. We'd gone out there with him so many times and nothing had ever happened. And Hal was an experienced hunter. He was always far more careful than we were. I could still picture Hal Parson, bulky man bursting from a gray and green ranger uniform, a broad hat shading his burly face. He spoke in a deep voice that rumbled from his barreled chest. I was afraid when I first met him, until I realized that he was harmless. As boys... He taught us how to track and hunt and how to survive in the wild. Something my dad would never have done. I broke my train of thought and spoke up. They still have that 90-pound king that he caught hanging behind the bar at the
2: fishing hook. I'm not sure. I don't get out much these days. Yeah, man, I I really am sorry. I always looked up to your dad. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was an alright guy.
2: Had some pretty dark moods, though, believe me.
1: I don't remember him ever being anything but generous.
2: Eh, we all have our secrets. A moment
1: passed, and then I spoke up again. How's your mom?
2: Living with relatives. I decided to move back after the accident.
1: Seeing him in this condition now, Griff reminds me of his mom. A bit sheltered, a bit frail. Yuki Parson was as thin as an icicle and always seemed to be on the verge of shattering. She walked with a cane, dragging her left leg behind her as she hobbled on her right. Griff told me that she had a severe case of frostbite as a child and was missing part of her toes. Why didn't you move with her?
2: Ma's side of the family never liked my dad, and uh, he passed that dislike down to me. That doesn't seem fair. Yuki
1: Parson had always greeted me with a smile whenever I came over, but then would head straight to her room upstairs. What about your dad's family?
2: Never knew any of them. As far as I know, he was an orphan. Griff staggers to his feet and heads to the fridge. You want another? I've barely taken two sips
1: out of my last one, but Griff was already digging in the fridge. He came back carrying two more. I can't imagine what it's been like for him living here all alone the last few years. Other than myself, Griff never had too many friends. He shied away from most people. It was only because he'd sometimes come to my parents' store after school that we became close. Griff eases himself into his chair.
2: You drive by your parents' place on your way over?
1: My body goes stiff as the dogs bay outside. flashback. A light shines on a puddle dripping through cracks in the deck. It shines on a blood trail, dotting a path to the kitchen. The wind slaps the back door, open and closed. I blink the image away. Why would I go there? Griff nods.
2: Yeah, probably for the best. He takes a slug of his beer. I was always sorry about what happened to your parents. They were good people. Your mom would always give us treats after school. Of course, your dad was kind enough to give me the stocking job my sophomore year. He used to let me take stuff home for dinner even though I knew you were all struggling. And, I mean, they always let me stay over at your place when my parents went out of town for the polar night. Set us up with snacks and sleeping bags in front of the TV. Man, I miss those days.
1: I hear branches scrape the window above the sofa. I peek out into the dark. The bushes on the side of the house tremble in the wind. At least I think it's the wind. There's a munching sound, like an animal chewing on bone. I grip the arms of the couch. I hear fingernails scratching the wood. A voice yelling. The words come out, loud as a gunshot.
2: Leaning forward into the light, Griff squeezes my knee. Sorry, man. I I guess I got carried away. I I just... I guess I miss him too. That's all. Griff's stomach rumbles. He leans forward and grimaces
1: in pain. I ask if everything's alright. If he needs anything. I guess the beers weren't such a good idea after all. I asked him if he wanted to lie down and get some rest. But instead... He stands and staggers from the table like a man three times his age.
2: You hungry? I'm starving. I can, I can cook you a steak or a burger if you want.
1: I follow Griff into the kitchen, concerned. Stepping around the counter, he flings open the fridge. Stacked on the top shelf were hunks of fresh red meat. Jesus, did you kill all that yourself? <clears throat> huh? The cow...
2: Oh, it's it's bison.
1: I don't care what it is. is. Is that what you've been living off out here? Griff turns around, a slab of meat cinched between his jaws, and tears a hunk out with his teeth.
2: No, I bought this from the butchers.
1: Griff, man, that shit's raw. He seemed to ignore what I'd said. He rips another piece with his teeth.
2: Are you sure you don't want any? I can cook yours.
1: Blood splashes on my parents' walls. It pools onto the kitchen floor. A pair of legs paddles in a pond of guts, piled like sausage links behind the glass counter at my family store. My mother's hand grabs for the counter. Her fingers slip off and land with a slap on the tile. I snapped out of it. Man, you need to tell me what the hell's going on. Why did you ask me to come here? And don't tell me it's to celebrate the Polar Night.
2: Griff swallows. Well, I asked you here to kill me.
1: I grab my bags and head for the door. The second I turn the knob and pull it open, Griff slams it shut with his palm. Please, don't go. Blood is smearing his lips. I stumble backwards toward the stairs. I'm afraid of what he might do. Do you know what you just asked? I know, it sounds crazy. Crazy? Maybe out here in the bush it's different, but that's murder, Griff. He holds his hands up to placate me. Not Not when they see what's buried out back. I'm afraid to ask. What's buried out back, Griff? He waves for me to follow him as he limps toward the back. I hesitate. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know who he is anymore. I glance at the front door, thinking about making a run for it. But I need to know what's going on. I need to know what's happening to my friend. What the fuck happened to you since I've been gone?
2: Griff was calm. Just come outside, and I'll explain everything.
1: We crunch across the backyard, drifts of snow whipping around us in miniature cyclones. A thin layer of sunlight glows deep red over the treetops. As soon as it disappears, it'll be dark for the next 24 hours. It shakes my nerves to think about it. Three steps from the back door, I stop dead in my tracks. Next to the shed, Griff has put up a cage, the kind made to kennel a large dog. Some of the bars are bent and dented. Scratches blemish a hefty padlock on the door. I could hear the neighbor's dogs bark and growl. What the fuck is this? Griff doesn't answer. I don't like where this is going. But still, I follow him around the side of the shed. In the back, there's an empty hole with a shovel stuck in a pile of snowy dirt. Griff stands at the foot, staring down into the dark. Along the forest edge, the land rises here and there in similar shapes. They're the size of bodies. I step back. What have you done? S- stay calm. Calm? Please tell me that's not what I think it is. I point at the mounds. A sob catches in Griff's throat. Tears fall down his cheeks. I didn't mean to. You didn't mean to? I point at the graves stretching along the property line. How many are there? Griff takes a step forward, and I take a step back. I don't know. It wasn't me. Not, not really... Griff, you're not making any sense. He stares up at
2: the darkening sky. The sun is fading behind the trees. It's the polar night. For the last few years, it makes me feel these urges. What kind of urges, Griff? It's like I'm on a fucking bender. I start getting sick, and then I start to lose control of my senses. Eventually, I black out. It. And then the next morning, I wake up. Not remembering where the fuck I am. Other times I find...
1: He stopped talking and gestured at the hole. I pulled my phone from my pocket and start dialing the police. Griff asks what I'm doing, but I don't respond. He lunges forward. Don't! And for the first time, I see fangs piercing through his gums. Thick, coarse hair sprouts from his palms. His fingers are the length of pitchfork tines. And the nails. The nails are big black claws. I tumble onto my back and scurry across one of the mounds, searching for a weapon. I grab the thickest branch that I can reach.
2: What the fuck is happening, man? We don't have much time. It's the polar night. When it gets full dark, that's when it comes out of hibernation.
1: I stand up and hold the branch, ready to swing slowly backpedaling toward the cabin. You're fucking kidding me, right? This is some kind of fucking prank? If you want to stay here and kill yourself, you go for it. But I don't want any part of this.
2: It was my fault that your parents got killed. There was something new in his tone. I
1: freeze, feet from the back door. That's impossible. You, you couldn't have. We were together when it happened.
2: Yeah, it was before the sickness. I don't know if you remember. The polar night fell early that year. It wasn't until I was heading home that I realized my parents hadn't gone into the mountains yet. I I ran all the way back, afraid something was going to happen. And when I got home, my folks weren't there. I saw their tracks outside the car. They tried to leave, but it was too late. I, I tracked them through the snow, you know, and and that's when I saw where they were headed
1: Bushes on the side of the house tremble There's a munching sound An animal feasting A stick snaps beneath my boots The beast growls A low rumble A bloody paw slices through the bush I lower the branch Look, you're sick, Griff That's what it is Why don't you get in my car? Come on, I'll take you to the police station. You can explain everything. They'll find you help, man. Somebody can figure out what's wrong.
2: Come on, therapy's not going to help.
1: You don't know that. Griff trembles at the sight of the yellow moon rising.
2: Do you ever wonder why your parents decided to live in Barton? Mine wanted to give me a normal life. Figured as long as they left during the polar night, no one would be the wiser. Ma didn't believe him. Warned him one day something bad was going to happen. Tears ran down his cheeks. I'm sorry about your parents. I truly am. I tried to stop my folks, but it was too late. The memory of
1: my dad shouts for me to run. I race to the shed, hide in the dark among the snow machine and other equipment. I look through the crack as a pair of glowing yellow eyes peer back. Then, with a groan, Griff collapses on all fours. I reach to pick him up, but he
2: shoves me away. Can't you see? Taking me to the police, that won't stop it. The beast will get out either way. It'll kill again.
1: I told him that I didn't want to kill him. There had to be another way. But Griff shouted that he'd tried everything. Muzzles bear traps, tranquilizers. He'd run to the emptiest parts of Alaska, just like his parents. But, somehow, the beast found its way back. He said that he'd lived here too long and knows where the food is. He'd even tried committing suicide, but he couldn't go through with it.
2: My dad was right. I'm too chicken shit.
1: I spoke again. Why me? Dragging his claws through the snow, he grunts.
2: Because you're the only person I trust.
1: Outside, there were others. The beasts circle the shed. There are several of them. They sniff the air. Long snouts blow steam out into the cold. I don't know how I knew it, but I did. Just then, Gunshots ring through the night. Bullets strike the ground in front of the wolves' paws. My parents turn tail and run off into the forest. Long after the beasts are gone, I come out of the shed. I call my parents' names. No one answers. Griff writhes in pain in the snow. His red eyes meet mine.
2: (laughs) I ran my folks off before they could get you all those years ago. I saved you once. Now I need you to save me. Inside the
1: cabin, I load my rifle with silver cast bullets. I got the silver muzzle and chain from the shelf. There was also a hefty silver key hanging from a nail by the back door. He thought of everything i slid it into my pocket when i'm back outside my breath fogs in the air griff is on all fours inside the cage stripped naked but with a coarse hair covering his entire body his hands and feet swollen into paws bigger than my head i clamp the wire muzzle over his face it looks uncomfortable the mesh pressing lines into his skin he shakes his head a few times to make sure it won't slip even though it doesn't move. He demands that I pull the straps tighter. Once satisfied, he tells me to latch the lock and he warns me, no matter what kind of pain he's in, don't let him out. My frozen fingers struggle to close the padlock, but finally, the bolt slams shut. I check that it's secure and then back a few feet away, gun held at my side
2: dogs are baying all around us. Griff speaks up again. You know, they say the disease sometimes skips generations. I thought it might pass me right by. That I'd get lucky. I guess it just took longer for the symptoms to show. Griff's bones crack
1: and snap as he growls in agony. I wish there was something I could do to ease his
2: pain. My grip tightens on the rifle. He went on. You know, I... I dreamed about coming to Seattle, coming to see you, maybe even find a job and stay. I warm my cheeks with my hands. Griff huffs what sounds like a laugh. (laughs) All my childhood, Mom told me not to make friends. It was too dangerous, she said. His skin splits and
1: stretches and splits again as he writhes on the snowy ground, even curled on his side. I can tell Griff has tripled in size. He shakes his head as his ears stretch into points. When he speaks again, Griff's voice is a growl.
2: Ma told me never to see you again. But Dad wanted me to keep our friendship alive. He said it was good for our family to look normal. And I wanted a friend. I needed a friend. I never meant for anyone to die. I want you to know that I love you, man. You are the one good thing in my entire shitty life. Even as I watch Griff
1: transform inside the cage, I still saw my friend. What if I can't do it? What if I can't pull the trigger?
2: Once I'm fully transformed, you won't have a choice. One way or the other, I'll break free. Through my tears, I start to laugh. Thanks for putting me in another awful situation, man. Would you expect anything less from me?
1: Griff opens his mouth, about to say something else. But his jaw dislodges, pushing forward the muzzle, the flesh tearing at the corners of his mouth. His nose splits in half. I lift the gun, but I can't bring myself to shoot. Drool spreads from his lips. He can sense my hesitation.
2: You gotta do it.
1: A massive snout ruptures Griff's face. Blood spraying the white snow. He thrashes his head back and forth. The muzzle goes flying. I can see my horrified reflection in its yellow eyes, the same way his parents' eyes had looked the night I hid in the shed, the night the grip saved me. The beast lunges at the cage door, smashing the bars with its head. I slip and fall on my ass. I scamper backwards and dig the gun from the snow and point it with shaking hands. The beast rams its head into the steel again, bending the bars. It claws at the padlock, scraping the metal, and pulls the chain into its maw. The links are warping, one way or the other. It's gonna break free. Wiping tears from my eyes, I take a deep breath, aim through the scope. I wrap my finger around the trigger. The beast howls. I fire. Burying Griff was nothing like burying my parents. Despite their torn remains, my parents were laid in coffins and there was a closed visitation. I remember how guilty I felt because I hadn't cried for them. My therapist explained that it was shock. It'd take years of sessions before I stopped having nightmares. But even after they stopped, the fear was always with me. I still feel it whenever a dog growls or a large shadow passes my vision. That day at the visitation, I stood by my aunt and uncle, shaking hands. There were a lot of people who came into the store. I thanked them for their kind words, people I really didn't know but who were saddened for me all the same. It was why I was so relieved when Griff showed up. His parents weren't with him. He said they apologized for not being able to make it. At the time... I didn't think anything of it. My parents were never close with the Parsons, and I knew that they camped every polar night. But now I knew why they weren't there. When Griff hugged me, it was the only time during the funeral that I cried. He kept telling me that he was sorry. I didn't understand then that he was apologizing for more than the loss of my parents. As I dug a hole and buried his human remains, I tried to feel angry at him for not telling me sooner. How could he have hidden this secret from me all these years? But could I really blame him? After all, he'd lost everything too. In the end, it was best that I put an end to it and gave him the peace that he desperately wanted. He was right. No one else could have done it. My only regret was that I didn't come to him sooner. It takes me well into the morning to finish burying him. The dogs have stopped baying, and a quiet has returned to the woods. Over the tree line, the northern lights glow misty green. I've forgotten how beautiful they are. Watching them now, I wish that Griff was with me to see them. I guess in a way, he was. I grab my things, get in the jeep, and I drive as fast as the snow will allow. By the time I reach the main street of Barton, the festivities are dying down. I know that this will be my last polar night. I won't be returning to Barton again. As I pass my parents' store, I stop and wait. I want to see if their ghosts will make their presence known. But they're not there anymore. All that's left is a sad, abandoned building. And the memories, sealed within its doors.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This was Polar Night, written by J.R. Blaines, narrated by Ian Epperson. Griff was Mason Amadeus. Music by Kayla Britchie. Assistance from Bridget Freeman. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Michael Vasquez, Amy Harper, Jackie Kay, Delta Tango, Chantel Payne, Nick, Emily Douglas, and Jake R. Thank you so much for your support. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about joining us on Patreon. You can check us out on social media. You'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under Pod13. And you can join the Facebook group for 13 Podcasts. Just look for the logo. You'll find links in the show notes. And if you're looking for the perfect holiday gift for the 13 fan in your life, check out the merch we have available on TeePublic. There's a link in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show, or if you'd like to contact us about anything else, you can get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You'll find submission guidelines and other info on our website, 13podcast.com. You can find all that in the show notes too. Bridget Freeman is a scream on the icy wind. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.